Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's 4th of July weekend, so this week we'll have a clip show featuring artist Katharina Gross. Next week, MoMA PS1 presents Rockaway 2016, a public art installation at Fort Tilden in the Rockaways, in which Gross will turn Fort Tilden's decaying aquatics building into one of her exterior paintings. The project is a collaboration between MoMA PS1, the Rockaway Artists Alliance, the Jamaica Bay Rockaway Parks Conservancy, National Park Service, the Central Park Conservancy, NYC Parks and Recreation, and Rockaway Beach Surf Club. This week's show is recorded in June 2013 when Gross was presenting a major exhibition at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. Katharina Gross, after the break. The Wexner Center for the Arts at the Ohio State University presents Martin Wong, Human Instamatic, on view May 14th through August 7th. This widely acclaimed show, called A Complete View of One of Our Great Urban Visionaries by the New York Times, features more than 80 paintings from every stage of Wong's extraordinary career, in all their formal inventive, gritty, and lyrical power. Originally presented at the Bronx Museum, the Wexner Center is the dazzling exhibition's first stop on a national tour. For more information on Human Instamatic, including additional events related to the exhibition, go to wexarts.org. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. Join J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in a new podcast, Art and Ideas. In the debut episodes, discover the history of porcelain with potter and author Edmund DeWall. Explore the depth of visual intelligence with art historian Eve Alambois on Ellsworth Kelly. Delve into the formative years of Los Angeles-based architect Frank Gehry. Unearth the ancient past with archaeologist Colin Renfrew and examine the history of Black Mountain College with curator Helen Molesworth. Available on getty.edu slash podcasts, or search for it in your favorite podcast player. And we're back. Katharina Gross, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hey, Tyler. So I want to I wanna start our conversation with something you told uh, Lynn Herbert back in 2004 when you had a show at the Contemporary Art Museum Houston. And a conversation with you took you kind of back to childhood. And you told her that you painted on, 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 on the walls of your house as a kid. And I want to know what you painted. <laughs> oh, I painted kids playing soccer. So it was actually, it was a big, I, I painted a big goal with the net and, you know, that was the biggest thing in the painting, I think. <laughs> was it like your, your bedroom? Your... Yeah, it was, it was a huge wall, actually, and I t- took the biggest paintbrush I could get. So it wasn't very detailed. <laughs> did, did your parents know you were going to do this? Yeah, we talked about it. My mother encouraged us to do it, I think. Wow. How old were you? Oh, I was maybe... Uh, Maybe five or something. Oh wow, that's that's quite early. And then I guess you also, at that point, started to put together ten or twelve sheets of paper or something, and painted or drew on that, and 
as well? Yeah, I, I kind of, I mean, I don't know. Looking back on it, it looks like something that um, makes me feel, why, why do I always want to go large? And I remember these things that I did. I wanted to paint volcanoes, for example, and I thought the A3 sheets were too small. So I made the biggest sheet I could get and installed it in the little room where we lived. I shared it with my brother, and I would play music in front of it, for example. I made little performances with a volcano backdrop. You were you were singing or no? Were... I was playing an, uh, I was playing flute, I think. Oh. So it's not a very volcanic instrument, <laughs> but <laughs> I thought it would look good if I had something <laughs> behind me. I guess. When you look back at those childhood experiences, do you think they were formative and kind of helped? Were the beginning of of where you've ended up, or yeah, maybe not... help and also not help. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I I didn't know what I was going to do as I left school. So I wasn't that kind of kid that had, like, the oil pastels given from their granddad, and I was drawing, like, Michelangelo little portraits or something, you know, at the age of three. I didn't do that kind of thing. But I was I loved to be outside and make things with my hands, I think. So, I, I for example, there was one thing. I had a crew. I kind of made uh, all my friends work for me at some point in the in the forest, and we peeled off all the barks from a tree. I figured there was a tree that had really durable bark, and I made them like weave a large a hammock. And I had no idea how it was going to work or if it was going to work, but I kind of convinced a team of like 10 guys to help me do this. <laughs> so that kind of installation or maybe an urge I seem to have had early on. But And I like these kind of projects, I think, as a kid. But I, I don't think I was really... Uh, doing stuff that would make everybody think, or me, maybe myself, convinced I would be uh, making paintings or things that were close to that. I, but when I was uh, 17 or something, I think I made a little watercolor, and my mom saw it on my table, and she asked me whether I did this. And I was a little, even I thought it was awkward because I had copied a black and white photograph I saw in the newspaper. And then she thought maybe I should follow that up. And the moment I... And she sent me actually to an excursion that would lead us to paint outside all day for like a week. And I did that. And that first day was really informative for me. That was like when I thought, wow, I've never done this. This is really amazing. And I'd like to do it all day. And that's when I started really considering going to an art school. But it, it sounds like even as a child, you were comfortable with space, which is something that's been constant in your work. For example, the very second work on your excellent website dates to 1995, and it is in a massive three- or four-story space, which has not, you know, it, it's not a space that has much in common with, say, a watercolor you might have painted when you were 17. Do you, looking back on how things have gone, have a sense of when big spaces began to be comfortable, if not necessary? I think I had a moment when I was studying at art school that I really didn't like the idea of being indoors, which um, somehow comes about with a practice in a sense, because I I love to be outdoors, and we went mountain climbing a lot when I was a kid. So we went to a little village in the Austrian Alps since I was two until I was maybe 16 every summer for like six weeks or so. So I, I, I'd be out in the mountains all the time, and that kind of spatial feel that you get there, be in the 
for example, start out in a little village and then you walk the whole day and then you end up on some peak and you look back and you see something totally different. So eventually you see that little village from up there or you don't see it anymore. But by moving along and doing something that's quite monotonous in a sense, like walk, and then all of, and you walk through all these different points of view and you experience yourself in a different way. I think that was something that was very strong, a very strong experience for me since I did it every day, every year. And I kind of got to know that landscape so well. And so being outside, you have a totally different spatial yeah, access to your surrounding and to yourself. And I think that was very influential for me. So this kind of feeling that being inside limits your scope I've had that very early on when I was starting to study art. But correct me if I'm wrong, you've only recently begun to make pieces outdoors. Yeah, that's true. But I was, I mean, I did things outdoors early on when I was studying. For example, I would store all my painting materials in a building site under some sort of tree or rubble and then come back to that site and paint there every day. I've, I've um, been very influenced or very much in love with this Norwegian painter's work, Edvard Munch. And um, he had these outdoor studios that were half sheltered. So he had built like some sort of courtyard structures with very simple materials, wood and just a little bit of roofing. And he would keep his paintings under there and eventually throw them in the snow or have them exposed to weather because he thought that that would make the work more interesting and would change also this color scheme he's been working on in the studio. And I thought that was an amazing uh, relationship he had to the work and to his surroundings. And so making work outside sometimes doesn't even, doesn't uh, lead necessarily to a result that looks like, oh, she's made an outside work, you know. (laughs) But you're right. I mean, in terms of really leaving the work outside and making it accessible to, to the to people passing by, I think that's probably since 2000. Part of the installation or one of the installations you're doing at the Nashville Sculpture Center in Dallas is outdoors. I'm not sure what the best... We'll have images of, of the work you're making now at the Nashville on the websites, modernartnotesandmanpodcast.com. But maybe just to make it a little easier for us to talk about, could you kind of quickly run us through what you're doing at the Nasher, and then we'll we'll jump into it from there. Yeah, sure. So the Nasher is that amazing building by Renzo Piano, and it has three areas where people can show work. And I decided to use all the three of them and kind of experience the work from different, yeah, in different qualities of the space. So there is a downstairs room that you can see. Actually, you can see, look into the room because it has one wall as a glass a window. So you see it from above, walking down into it, and you can walk into it. And it's a, a dirt room. So it's filled with dirt and soil, very clay stuff. You can walk on it. And I kind of half buried two large canvases in that installation. And I painted the whole thing. So you're going to walk in that thing on the colors and on the painting. And it will change also because people will walk through it during the course of the show. And then as you go outside into the garden, there are actually two large, clunky, chunky things that lean on one another, and they are painted. <laughs> and they're sitting under the trees next to the Marc de Souvaro and the um, Sarah piece. And that was another condition for me that was very interesting, that the collection is so 
interestingly put together from classical modernist things on pedestals and further on to the generation they discovered, oh, we are sitting actually somewhere else on the, in the space than on a pedestal, and we deal with gravity and the truth of the material, and now I'm coming in with something that's maybe not sculpture at all, but that nevertheless uses volume and space as a location to show what I'm doing. So I'm not dealing with gravity, I'm not dealing with the truth of a material in a sense, but I actually paint on sculptural surfaces. And then there is a third part, and that's being made for the main gallery, and it is actually commissioned by Nasher in a sense that we talked about it like two years ago, and I was given the okay and carte blanche and budget, <laughs> which is a dream, and uh, to make a <laughs> work in Berlin, and it's come here in containers, and uh, we put it together to get today, and that, that is a very multidimensional uh, yeah, a structure I've never made so far, which is about 60 feet long and will start in the gallery and then go through the window out into the onto the terrace. In Bern, back in 1998, you did an installation that was heavy on the color green, and you said that one reason that you used greens in that piece was to, quote, artificially answer, as you said, at the greenish light that came in through the museum's windows. There's lots of green outside at the Nasher. So two of those three pieces, obviously the piece downstairs you can't see outside from, you have this intense color and light North North Dallas in the summer that's going to be interacting with the piece. I wonder if the colors and the light at the Nasher influence your colors, the colors you used in the pieces there. No, I don't think so directly, no, because also there is, I mean, the garden is enormously sheltered because there are these trees and they're starting to to become larger trees now. And what does make probably, or what is influencing, or was influencing my understanding of what to use in terms of colors was the fact that there is no colored or really painted piece in the collection. So the, the, the context of the collection for me was far more probably influential than the, the light here in Dallas. I'm, I just, I'm just aware it's really, really strong. And but I don't live here. I can't see. I, I don't know it really from the whole year and so on. So You've also said that the first 20 minutes of installing a piece is particularly fantastic because you see right away how your work will transform a space. And I wonder if you had that experience or have had that experience in Dallas. Yeah, you have these first, yeah, I would even say the first half of the day is amazing because you're, you make so many things in a very short time and then things, and there is something to see in your work that you can take and go to the next decision layer. But this time I really experienced that it's each decision kind of makes you have a new, such a new um, condition on which you make new, create new paradigms in a say, in a sense, right? So that this combination of thinking and acting is so close that you, once you change something again, even though you're very far with your work, that whole work can change drastically. So I was painting until the last minute and changing things and repainting things. So it was actually a quite densely painted piece in the end. You were mentioning a moment ago that kind of seeing can be creating. And you've talked before about how when you use the spray gun, that as you look at something, you are actually painting it, and that it's kind of hard to be spraying in one direction and looking at, at the other. Is that an idea that you derived from, from somewhere in painting theory or a preconceived notion of some kind, or was that 
something that as you started to use a spray gun way back when, you realized that's just how the thing worked and you embraced it? Yeah, that is something that I, I probably built up to it also. I mean, I was probably also realizing that painting something with a paintbrush locks the body very, very clearly to the to the wall because you touch the wall and you are exactly where the paintbrush is with your body as well. Whereas with a paint with a spray gun you are you have far better reach and you can go places like three, four, five, six, eight, ten feet away from you and can hit that place in the space as well. And that's actually where you go with your eyes a lot. So I was then realizing all of a sudden that when I look at something in the space I touch something with my eyes in the space, for example. That's very often the place where I can't really go with a paintbrush. So I was discovering an enormous freedom in using the gun, not only because it enlarges my reach, but because there is this fantastic connection between eye and gun rather than body and brush. I mean that we constitute what we are seeing while we are looking at it and by looking at it. I mean, that's something, of course, clear. That's a kind of a commonplace thing, but this kind of very in a dynamic situation where you make decisions and you think and you act, that kind of close linking between looking at something, thinking about it, and doing something about what you look at. I thought that was a new discovery for me. Do you still never use a brush? No, I do. I do use brushes as well. Yeah, yeah. It's not that I discover the br- that the gun has kind of now tossed the brush into the bin, you know. It's not that kind of... <laughs> situation. I use all sorts of tools in the studio as well. My guest is Katharina Gross. We'll be right back after a break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2016. A, the, though, only. The third biennial of artists working throughout Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curator Ara Moshayeti, and the Renaissance Society's Hamza Walker, Made in LA 2016 features the work of 26 artists. Occupying the entire Hammer Museum, the exhibition includes condensed monographic surveys, comprehensive displays of multi-year projects, the premiere of new bodies of work and newly commissioned works from emerging artists. Find details at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in LA 2016, a, the, though, only. On view June 12th through August 28th at the Hammer Museum. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern Accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers. Opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Katharina Gross. Before the break, we were talking about 
the many different kinds of surfaces on which you, you paint. And you were talking about dirt, but you've also painted on balloons, styrofoam, concrete, laminated foam, reinforced plastic, and probably other things I'm not thinking of at the moment. What are the differences between them? Do, do they receive paint differently? Do they absorb paint differently? How are they? How how do they vary as a as a as a surface or a medium? Yeah, they they. I mean, on the technical level, of course, they receive it differently. They absorb it differently. But most importantly, they bring something into the work. Let's say that that very often a very clear function or an image. So, for example, the dirt refers to, um, of course, soil, garden, outside landscape, even country or at the same time as it starts to get painted it looks like pigment or it looks like even glowing light coming from underneath so it but at the same time it stays stays dirt so there is a, never this situation where when i'm painting on a surface i don't destroy the surface but the surface is always there in its prime primer function but at the same time it adheres another it gets another yeah how should i say another quality that has to do with the imagine, the, was imagining an image that is in, a, in the widest sense maybe an illusion. So it is not pigment, but it's not a garden and it's not a landscape, but at the same time you can see all the three of them in it. And the same with, for example, I painted my bedroom. I, you know, I, that was actually the start when I, when I decided to, to let come everything into my installations. You know, so that bedroom was exactly how I left it, like the duvet open with um, books in the bed, open suitcases. There was a little writing desk next to it. And I would think, okay, I... And I was in a situation where I was really, really fed up with a lot of things that I've been doing. I'm, the installations had gone way too big. I was feeling I was overwhelmed with my own work, with the consequences they that work had created for me. So I was going back home and I made this little work just at home without people seeing it, without an audience in mind, without a deadline in mind. And I painted over every surface I had, like my clothes, the paintings that were hanging on the wall. I would paint on my bed, the sheets. The... It was a very expensive bed, actually. I was, I was also testing myself. I was thinking, okay, what could I do? Could I maybe, what does it feel like if I go over my own world, in a sense, you know, when it's not a gallery or a museum space? And I had just bought this bed by Jasper Morrison, and I was thinking, cool, let's see. And it was actually all of the things that you say behave differently on the different surfaces, but most importantly, it kind of um, broke up um, all the the differences between the things that you actually normally see as separate. So the socks and the duvet and the books and the um, the music, the CD player, and all these things all of a sudden were sharing green, red, and blue. So they stayed their entities, and at the same time, on another level, they would give up all their entities. And that was a very interesting discovery I've made by doing it. So actually, that is far more interesting to me than the technical problems, like, for example, does the paint trip faster on a wall than on a velvet dress. Well, in the late 2000s, you published a book called Wish I Had a Big Studio in the Center of the City, and it's a book about your home and studio in Berlin. And there are lots of photos of um, everything from art storage in the building to the curtains, your bed. And it's a fascinating little book. We'll have, we'll have links to it on the website. I guess first off, why did you want to do that? Why did you want to do a, 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 a book about about your home and studio? 
Oh, I did the book to thank my my architects because they've built like it was for themselves in a sense. And I had just handed them a little piece of paper um, where I wrote down what I needed. And I had a very busy year. I think it was 2008. And I said to to them, I'm I'm hardly here, and I can maybe come once to see what's going on. And so they built this building for me in nine months, and it's a really great building. And my intention was to kind of talk about this because I'm. So that's why I thought maybe I make a little brochure or like a little textbook that you have in your pocket and hand over to a friend to say, hey, read this. You know, that was my idea. But then the publisher said, no, it should be more like something that you that you feel like going through and maybe starting here or at the end and maybe there are images in it and that are more important. And then I started to think, okay, maybe I have like five different people from five different directions write about it. And that's how it got more uh, like a book on a shelf maybe (laughs) rather than a little textbook that you like a pamphlet. But the thing is that I thought I have worked in so many different spaces that were discarded spaces coming from other professions like, you know, I don't know, storages, old factories, garages, and none of them were really made for my work. And none of them were really easy to make into something that I could use. They were not well heated, the lights weren't good, the access was always a problem. And I was thinking, like, car mechanics would never accept a a workshop that wouldn't be fit for their needs. And that's why I thought artists should be more (laughs) out there, self-confident, and make something that looks maybe even like, you know, like a studio building that's part of the urban net that you actually, you have, okay, you have gas stations, you have pharmacies, you have artist studios, you know, that make our city. And that's why I made the book. Uh, On a number of pages in the book, we see the curtains in in your home and studio, and they're fabulous. Did you design them or did you make them? I mean, the, the, the studio has a couple of really, really big windows because I didn't want to live in very clearly defined rooms with little openings where I could lock myself in. So I, I wanted to be connected to the outside. And so I thought, okay, the sleeping room needs maybe um, curtains. And since it's a very simple structure, all cast in concrete and sheetrock inside, and I thought maybe I need some one spot where it's like a warm thing, and I decided to use corduroy that you normally use for sofas or furniture, right? So upholstery, actually. It's an upholstery material by Kenzo, and I made it into curtains. It looks great. It's like a theater for curtain, actually. In the morning, you open these curtains, and then you see the world. <laughs> it's quite interesting. The book you published to chronicle your, your, your home and studio is really great, as is a book you published a couple years before that called Your Atoms Inside Balloons, which documents an installation and show you had at the Renaissance Society in Chicago in 2007. It's about as good a book about a single exhibition and a single installation as you'll ever find. The pictures chart the change in the balloons you painted, and they're literally balloons, during the course of of the exhibition. And of course, the balloons did everything from deflating slowly I guess just kind of exploding, if you will. And that's a really interesting installation in that it brought the passage of time into your work in a really interesting way. I mean, normally, you know, in, in, a, in a really big piece of yours, you know, you, a viewer walks through the piece and experiences it and, and obviously takes time in the piece. But your Atoms Inside Balloons was a very different way of a painter addressing time. And I wonder how you came to that idea. 
Oh, one of the reasons was probably practical, because the Renaissance Society space, which is fantastic and really unusual, is on top of the University of Chicago, and it's um, a really, uh, it's an I think it's a 19th century building, and uh, so the access was not easy. There was a very small lift bringing material up, and also I couldn't put anything heavy into into that space because it's the last top floor. And then the other thing is that the, the space is in, is quite high. It has an amazing start, and it's like folded up because it shows the, the roof structure. It's folded up like an origami indoor roof in a sense. And uh, in the 60s, I guess, they put in light racks at the start of 350 and separated that upper volume of the roof space and the lower volume of what you would consider a gallery space. And the, these light racks are, they don't really block it, but they kind of define there is gallery and there is something that we normally don't use. And I thought, um, how could I get something above that level that would be easy to get up and still give me a surface to paint? Because I didn't want to have the painting sit on the walls. I wanted the painting to be floating in the space. And that's how I came up with these balloons. And we uh, did a little bit of research, and that was actually the first time I used balloons. So we, we found these latex balloons in Austria that are used to trigger off avalanches somehow. I don't know how they do it, but um, in those days. <laughs> so <laughs> they're like six feet wide, and we brought like, I don't know, 40 or so of them. And I only tested one balloon, and I realized at home, you know, and I realized it would lose air. That was that's due to the material. Latex somehow transpires air. <laughs> and, um, so we thought, okay, we we try this, and we know. And Hansa Walker, who was the curator of the show, who did, who was amazing to work with, by the way. And Hansa was okay with having a show that would decay. And I also painted the floor. So at the beginning, when we opened the show, there was this huge balloon piece in the space, and that was really the dominant thing that you saw. And the floor piece looked quite like just as a result, you know, of painting in the space. But then as the balloons went away, the floor piece became more more visible, which was a great thing to happen. And the other thing that I found very interesting is that you actually you blow up color, or in a sense paint, and then you paint that paint again with another color. So this relationship of giving color a body which makes it actually which is a which is a fundamental problem in painting and will always be that and the moment that color turns into a body it kind of well references to something that we can identify so you have maybe a little bit of um, ochre on the surface and from far away it looks like brass buttons let's say in a portrait of Goya and then you go close and then you see oh it's just a little actually a crumple of ochre put on with the sun and this kind of back and forth between color and paint or the illusionistic identifiable thing or the body which is paint and this back and forth is really fascinating so I thought that blowing up balloons and giving like some substance a body and then paint it again to kind of camouflage it so actually, I have a red balloon and I paint it blue, so I camouflage the red. And I think this kind of constant change of painting over things and thus change their identity is super interesting. Mm. Well, that's a good transition to talking about color. You have a very distinct 
sense of color, a very distinct way of using color. I, I, what I'm trying to say, I guess, without being super cliched, is that you have, it seems to me you have a reasonably identifiable palette. First off, I, I guess I don't maybe quite understand how the gun works. Can you mix colors in the gun or before you put color in the gun? Or how do you get to the color you use? Oh, you can mix it in the gun, but I rarely do that. So I use the colors that come from the, uh, the I mean, I use a product that's uh, uh, made in the U United States. It's the best acrylics you can buy by Mr. Golden. And these golden acrylics, they have a certain color chart. I very rarely mix other colors in from other maker producers. And yeah, I mix um, actually on the surface, you know, by spraying wet into wet sometimes. Do you think of your palette and the range of colors you use as having changed over time? Yeah, I think it's become more complex in the sense that there are also subtones that tend to get dirtier. So there are blacks or dark colors now as well, which I didn't have at the beginning, I think. Because to my eye, it looks like in the beginning you started using mostly one or two colors in pieces. All right, yeah, that's true. That's when I sprayed, yeah, I did. Right, right. And then you expanded the number of colors you used but kept them within a, a range that was almost neon in brightness or intensity. And that in recent years, you've begun using deeper, maybe quieter colors, if you will, like dark blues. And I wonder if that, if that has something to do with just you playing with your palette and, and, and broadening it, or if it's more about what colors were available to you or the surfaces on which you're painting, kind of how that reigned. I guess I'm wondering how that kind of transition has happened. Oh, there are different reasons every time I, I change it. For example, at the beginning when I was, I mean, I was always using very raw and unmixed colors early on when I was even young. And uh, I was doing a lot of different things. When I was studying, let's say, I was, you know, and there was a moment in my life when I thought, Jesus, what am I doing? I'm, I've been doing all these things in the last four or five years. What is in common with, what do they, all these things share? And I realized it was actually the color palette. So that's when I started with, again, from scratch, just using these very artificial raw colors. And I started to develop my practice again. And I think that that motivation to have that kind of palette, I mean, whether now a little more tinted or a little more raw and maybe glary, but the palette is kind of the same. And I use it because I find it so, it has such a strong ability to trigger off reactions in you, like maybe a voice has when you listen to a song. Maybe you don't really listen to the text of the song, but rather to the the, the color or the, the velvetiness of the voice or, or the, the harshness or whatever. It makes so much more within you. I don't even know whether it's emotions or what it is, what it does with you. And I think that color really has this ability to kind of grab your attention, your emotional fabric, your whatever setup you have, and make you react and before you have any other thoughts. And I find that a really, really fascinating way to be attracted and maybe uh, to be aggressive in a positive sense with my surroundings. Are the colors you select for a given piece or a given multi-piece installation intuitive and in response to the place, or do you sometimes, say, riff on colors you've seen another artist using? Oh, oh that can all happen. 
Yeah, very often it has it has to do with the situation that I'm in, like whether the what the the light is, whether it's artificial or natural, or whether it changes. Or, but it can also be that I'm for some reason very intrigued by a certain color that I then use, um, maybe to start even. It it is not necessary that this color maybe then comes out at the end as well, but it can be that I start with something. The thing about color is such a classic problem. Uh, the uh, line versus color as a as a, a discussion in in art as, uh, led by artists as well. I mean, it goes back to the 17th, 16th century where people would still say that the drawing and the concept or the projection, the projetto, so to speak, is the line, and that's actually the strong um, thing that an artist needs, and it's also the male, so to speak, um, quality and Color is something that's um, always changing. You never really know what it, how you feel about it the next day. So it is not clear. It's not a principle, and it's the female. And it was very much um, looked upon as the secondary um, element in making images or paintings. Mm-hmm. And um, it was only in the beginning of the nineteenth, um, and then uh, start to the twentieth century that. Actually, um, the biggest development for painting was made in in the color fields. I mean, be it like coming from Delacroix to the Fauve over to um, the Expressionists and um, Impressionists and all the the movements that came about were actually coming from the field of using color in a different way. I mean, the the example I was going to use was you did a you made a piece in 2011 for the Kunstmuseum Stuttgart that kind of looks to me like it borrows, you know, maybe Gerhard Richter's palette from the 1980s. And I wonder if you think that specifically when you make a piece. Yeah, there is a very close relationship to the Richter palette, I would say as well. I mean, not only in that piece, but there can sometimes is, yeah. And finally, I wanted to talk a little bit about the way people encounter your installations. Virtually from the beginning, visitors have walked into large rooms or spaces spaces that you have treated two or more walls or surfaces of. And from nearly the beginning, you've encouraged people to walk amongst them, to move through the piece, even to walk on the piece. I think at the Nasher, for example, people are encouraged to climb on, on the soil and on the work. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Why Why is that an important element? Why is that something that stayed constant in the work for so long? Um, yeah, I'm fascinated by the fact that you actually are in your own way. So when you move through a piece or you're in it, you, you're actually covering some of what you want to look at. And I find that an interesting situation. So you have to deal with yourself. You have to be kind of careful where you go or what you look at in a sense. And also you are the center that is drifting through the installation. So there is no right way from where you can say, okay, this is how it's meant to be. So there is no focal point or, you know, I think that the focal, that that the situation or the reality shifts and changes every second we assume a new point of view. And that kind of experience you can make when you move through the, the work. So the work is actually being made or constitutes, is being constituted by people walking through it and actually assuming new angles and 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 they make another experience also walking through it rather than be in front of it and look at it. It seems to me that also turns your paintings into kind of almost a time-based experience. Yeah, I think that time is a an, an, an fascinating thing in painting. 
because it's not only that time-based in a sense that you have a beginning and an end and there is like a consecutive set of actions and that is in painting totally different. Painting has no beginning and no end and painting has not really that differentiation between past, present and future, you know, like we have in language where one word follows the other or music or in the moving image. The interesting thing in painting is that you can start with, let's say, a blue and then you add a green and a yellow and then you overpaint it partially with, let's say, purple. But the blue and the yellow and the green, they are all still there at the moment, at the end when you look at the work. But it could have also, you're not quite sure what is the first thing people did in the painting. So you can actually reverse time as well in a painting. So painting has a very interesting way of dealing with time. And I don't find that that ability to kind of cluster information into a, yeah, into a field where you can't tell past, present, and future anymore apart. I can't find that anywhere else so clearly as I can find it in painting. That's interesting because we had Julie Maritou on the program last week, and she talked about how one reason she likes working up in many layers on a canvas and then including many, many different areas of small and different kinds of marks on the canvas. One reason she does that is she wants people to have to spend time in front of the piece to get sucked into it, to to not walk by it and look, but to stand there for, for minutes, many minutes. And it kind of sounds like you're saying a similar thing. I mean, your your work couldn't be any more different from hers but it sounds like you're both kind of interested in that same idea and finding ways to activate it. Yeah, I'm, I totally agree. I, I just saw her show um, in New York. I think it's great what she does. And she does it in a maybe it, from the other end of the of the whole thing. I mean, it totally works what, what you're saying about her work. And what I try to do is maybe I'm more interested in the in the same quality, but more in the paradox that you encounter by putting things into the same system that seem to be paradoxical or that seem to contradict one another. And if they are in the same system, though, you, you, you try to negotiate this. For example, you paint a wall or a corner, let's say, with green, and that deep green suggests there is a, a spatial thing you can look into. But you can't measure that green. It's flat. It's just paint on a wall. Whereas the architecture you can measure, you can say that's so and so many feet long, it's high, it's uh, wide, and it's a space that can be described by by meter and by a function, whereas the space of a painting can't. And you put these two things that follow totally different spatial rules together in one system. So that also creates a time compression, right? And I think that is an interesting ability you need to develop or we can develop with our brains, like in Julie's work, which is so detailed and has all these, this amazing variety of different touches. And like in my work, where there are actually two or three very large elements coming together that are very contradictory, that we have this ability to negotiate paradox situations in our life. And I think this is an ability that we need more and more to negotiate how we live together in society. You mentioned corners. You used to, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think you used to paint in corners a ton and that you've done less of that in the last few years. Have you been getting away from corners? Yeah, it's been going more into the space, into the volume of the space rather than the walls. I mean, maybe that's one of the, the thoughts behind it. 
that I started to be interested in what would a painting do if it was floating or moving in the space rather than be kind of restricted to the parameters of the space. Something about that reminds me of of, of two pieces you d- you've done many years apart. You did an installation at Chinati in Marfa, Texas many years ago, a piece that was spectacularly viewed through um, large windows in the front of a building, for example, and how that piece seemed to kind of float in that building. And you've recently done a piece for the Museum of Contemporary Art in Cleveland, which also is, you know, you can walk into the space, but you can also view it through massive kind of glass wall-sized windows. So we've been talking about how normally you can walk into the piece and extend it it, it, it that way and, and experience it in a time-based way by walking through the piece. Are you also interested in how not being able to enter the piece and having to view it through glass extends the piece in a, in a different way by giving people maybe a much broader, wider range of places from which to see it? I'm not sure I'm saying that very well. Yeah, I think it is interesting to see that the painting is not only related to a wall, but actually to a body, which is the building. So to experience maybe the building more as a sculptural yeah, given. And I think in Marfa that was so funny because, you know, I painted that piece, I would paint at night, and then I would um, switch the lights off and go home. So I would never really see it from the outside. I wouldn't realize, hey, that's something great from the outside. And then one night my friends would come and pick me up for a beer and they saw me working still and they said, hey, you know what, it looks so great from outside. That's when I started to understand what I was doing, that it had this relationship to the outside and to pass us by. And I think that's a great thing. The piece was made in 1999. Well, Katharina Gross, thanks so much for talking with me and congratulations on the show at the Nasher. Hey, thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.